Welcome to the Birth Nurses Podcast. I'm Shana Brickner from Preparented, and I'm joined by my co-host Liz Baker-Wade from Birth and Beyond in Santa Monica, and we are the Birth Nurses. In this podcast, we're going to talk about birth, babies, breastfeeding, nursing practice, and more from our perspective as nurses in the hospital world. From two women who have been on both sides of the birthing bed, we've got some things to talk about that will enhance your understanding of birth. Whether you're a newly pregnant, first-time parent, or expecting your second baby and you want a better experience this time around, this podcast is for you. Join me and my co-host and special guests as we discuss birth from the womb to the room. Hi, everybody. This is Liz and Shana, the birth nurses. Hope everybody's good and managing through this coronavirus isolation time. I know that uh, the city's loosening up. We hope everybody is safe. And uh, we'll tell you a little bit about what's going on in the hospital before we start our podcast. And today we're going to talk about what happens when you first hit the delivery room in our front desk and the assessments we make in that first hour-ish of what to expect. And so here we go. So Shana, what's it been like the last couple of weeks of COVID? What are the... What are some of the challenges and barriers just to kind of sum up last week's show? Yeah, so definitely things are changing all the time. That's true. Continue to have an influx of patients. Uh, Women are having their babies left and right. And and coronavirus isn't stopping them. The people who were pregnant before coronavirus are having their babies. And... (laughs) And uh, we're helping them through that. So there may be some visitor policies still in place, but but mostly I see that the patients are really satisfied with their care at the hospital. Their partner can stay with them the whole time through labor and delivery and postpartum. A change, that's a change. Yeah, the, the staff is taking precautions to protect themselves and protect the patients by wearing proper equipment and masks and goggles and face shields. So it looks a little bit different, but, but we're doing our best. And I think we are. Yeah. yeah. There's a little bit of blowback. Um, sometimes I have to kind of cajole the partners in the room to keep their mask on when I'm in the room. Mm. I usually say, you can do what you want when I'm not in the room, but if a nurse or anybody else comes in the room, just slip your mask back on. Sure. We do COVID test every mom at the moment, and hospitals are rotating through this. Some did. They got some numbers and aren't anymore. We are. Um, that could change, but still, everybody needs to know this is an ever-evolving scenario, and it will continue to evolve until there's set standards of care in place. And that could take a while because this is a new animal and we're all trying to figure it out. But I think we've settled into some routines that seem a little bit less obstructive. And Mm -hmm. like I talked about last show was dropping your mask for a second and saying hi so that we can all get a chance to see each other's face, (laughs) which is, Yeah. yeah, it's good. So today we're going to talk about what happens when you get there. This is all about your first 
impression of the unit, our assessment of you. And I laugh about this a lot, and I talk about this in class, that when a mom comes to labor and delivery and says, hi, I'm in labor, I'm so excited. This is the worst pain I've ever had. It's amazing. Um, (laughs) I'm going to have my baby. (laughs) And of course, in our brain, you know, with the bubble hanging overhead, we're, oh, you're so going home. And I know (laughs) that seems cynical and silly, but there are some pretty obvious physical, emotional cues that tell us the difference between I'm in labor or I am having contractions. And there's a very, very distinct physiological difference between labor, which is pushing the baby out of the uterus, and contractions, which is tightening and relaxing. So we do make an assessment right there on the spot to see kind of how fast we have to move. Exactly. Yeah. So when you first come into the unit, you're going to first see the clerk or the secretary sitting at the desk. Sometimes there's a nurse there too. And sometimes it's, it's the clerk who's not a registered nurse. Um, but uh, they're going to ask you some questions. And they're also going to use their observations to make their quick assessment too. If you're huffing and puffing and bent over the desk or whatever and you're doubled over on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Then we're gonna we're gonna act pretty quickly and and maybe skip the the formalities and the questions that we normally ask and save them for asking in the room. But usually we ask when you're at the desk and we'll ask for your ID and insurance card. So remember to have those handy and We'll ask a few basic questions like how many weeks are you? What number baby is this for you? Who's your doctor? And why are you here today? Did your water break? Is your blood pressure high? Are you having contractions? We just kind of need to know those quick answers to determine if you're going to go into a triage room or if you're going to go into a labor delivery recovery room. Yeah, a triage room is just the area where we are maybe ruling out labor because you don't obviously look in labor. Um, Maybe check to see if you really did break your water or if it's just, here it comes, urine. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And feeling like your water broke is not uncommon in the third trimester, I am here to tell you. Um, Did your doctor send you over for blood pressure checks because your blood sugar is too high, because you are having a pain somewhere, because something doesn't feel right or the baby's not moving. That's a triage room. We try to reserve labor rooms for moms who are going to come and stay. So the triage rooms in most hospitals are small. Um, They're cramped. They often don't have a window, but rest assured, if you're in labor, you're not staying there long. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so also just pro tip and a little side note, if it also depends on what time you come that will determine how uh, busy it is in the nurse's station. So we work in 12-hour shifts, most hospitals do, and we change shifts at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. So Anywhere between the 7 to 7.30-ish 
time frame will be <laughs> a little bit chaotic in the nurses' station. <laughs> <Like> chaos. <laughs> so if you happen to come to the labor and delivery unit at that time, we can't stop you from coming if you need to come. But if you happen to come at that time, just be aware that it may be a little more chaotic, a little more noisy. It might yeah. take a couple minutes to find the nurse who's going to be assigned to you. Right. Um, so just a little pro tip. Absolutely. That's an interesting thing. I think that people don't really understand the amount of information that we have to ascertain as our assessment when you first get here mm-hmm. to very first thing is establish maternal fetal well-being. So we get you on the monitor after we get you undressed and in a gown or whatever you feel like wearing pretty quickly to establish a baseline so we know that your baby's okay. And we won't go into the fine pathophysiology of the heart rate, but we want to know that your baby's heart rate's within the normal limits kind of as soon as possible. Your doctor expects within a certain amount of time that we've made that assessment. And of course, your vital signs. So when people come in the unit and they're in really dire straits and they look like they're very intensely in labor and say, I need an epidural immediately. I always sort of like, I grit my teeth and I'm like, oh no, you know, I'm going to fail my patient just miserably right now because they have an expectation that I can make that epidural happen. And 25 things need to happen first, right? Exactly. Yeah. We have to get a medical history. We have to determine if you've had a healthy pregnancy or if you've had some issues that need attending to. We do a brief survey assessing for postpartum depression, like your risk for postpartum depression, and a vaginal exam to determine if your cervix is dilating and you're in labor. We call the doctor for orders or for discussing your case if you should stay and be admitted or uh, what kind of blood work needs to be done. And, and if then, you're really hurting, right, there's could be three nurses in there trying to get you admitted because we know you want that epidural if you do. Exactly. We're trying, yeah. to, we're trying to get it all done at one time. Yeah, we work together pretty well, I would say, in labor and delivery when there's a patient that needs assistance quickly or um, pretty pretty close to delivery. We want to make her birth wishes uh, come true as close as possible, whether that be having an epidural or being comfortable in the bed, whatever, whatever that may be. Whatever that may be. I know that when patients come in, moms don't really have a point of reference if they're a first-time mom or a prima gravita. So the expectation is I'm going to be a certain amount of dilation. The uterus is, the mouth of the uterus is thin and open because I'm in this much pain. But remember, the pain that you're in, the discomfort that you're in is not always commensurate with how dilated you are. So stay in the moment. Let us get our assessment done. Let us ask the questions we need to ask. I know they seem mundane and unnecessary, but there's definitely information that has to be documented so that we can move forward. You know, Shana, 
it's really nice when the doctors call and give us a heads up that someone's coming and gives us a brief history. You know, a lot of the questions we can save for after we get mom admitted, but when the doctors don't give us a heads up because the patient couldn't get a hold of them and they show up, then we have to take kind of a deep dive into their history to find out what's going on. Exactly. Yeah, it is a nice heads up from the doctor if they call us ahead of time and say, I have a first time mom. She's 37 weeks and she thinks that her water broke. So boom, right there, we already have in our minds what we need to get ready and where we're probably going to put this patient, what room is available and so on. Absolutely. We like to get things. We don't, you know, we don't like to appear like we're a deer in the headlights when you come to the nurse's station. You know, a lot of labor and delivery, and this is in every hospital in every unit. Um, you know, we want to appear receiving and happy. And I'm so thrilled to see you even at three in the morning, even when we want to cry when there's another patient walking in. We want to appear as though we are happy to see you. <laughs> and uh, we want to get the appropriate room ready and the appropriate stuff that we have to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, if people understand that we have a process to do, then sitting quietly, you know, partners and let us get you in labor all squared away before the conversation start. We will get to things like, do you have a cord blood kit? Do you want to take your placenta home? Do you have a birth plan that we should go over? Now, if you're out of your mind in pain, we're not going to talk about a lot, a lot about that, but we're going to ask for the cord blood kit if you look like you're in serious discomfort and we want to get you admitted quick. Why is that? Well, so in the cord blood kit, there's the maternal blood that we need to collect. So from the mom, we have to collect a few tubes of blood and it has to be before she's gotten any fluids, any IV fluids. So we like to do that at the initial IV start so that we don't have to poke you again. again. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, that's one reason we like to know if you have a core blood kit. So we're not kind of rushing in the middle or at the end. So we'll ask before we start the IV, do you have a cord blood kit? And if you do, then we'll draw the maternal blood and have that ready to go. Can I just talk a little bit about a pet peeve of mine? I would love that. People, get your cord blood kit. Open it. Be familiar with it. Know that there's tubes in there, that there's paperwork, there's registration, there's forms. Technically, your labor and delivery nurse is there to obtain blood samples and see to it that we get the cord blood stem cells and tissue that you want. But you really do need to be familiar with your cord blood kit. So if it's sealed and you're coming to the hospital and your partner is in pain, open that blood kit. Tell me that you have one. Don't leave it in the car. Say, I have the maternal cord blood right here. I really meet so many people who's like, well, here's a kit. I don't know what's in there. It's like, well, get familiar with it. It really saves time, and it makes you understand sort of one of the processes that we have to accomplish before 
Um, we can do it afterwards, but it's not optimal. Optimally, they want it upon arrival. And there's so many different kinds of blood of core blood kits. So oh gosh, you may say, oh, well, you may think you've seen so many of these core blood kits, so it's all the same, right? But not all of them are the same. There's different ways to label the blood and right. so yeah. It is that would be so helpful. I've never had someone do that where they right. are familiar with the kit already and take out the tubes for you. Like that has never happened. So <laughs> well, we're gonna uh, change the game. We're gonna educate. <laughs> familiar with your stem cell kit. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So we do have to start an IV and we do this to obtain blood. We get a type and screen to make sure that if you by any chance would need any blood product that we have the right blood type. And I think that's pretty standard of care in every hospital. We get a, what we call a CBC and we make sure that you are not uh, dehydrated, that you don't have an infectious process that becomes obvious and a few other things. And we want to get that in if you're in a lot of discomfort, but it's not always necessary to run IV fluid just because you're in labor. In fact, I like it when people ask me not to run IV fluids and that I can have mobility. What does that mean? Yeah, so there's something that maybe you heard of called a saline lock, or sometimes people call it a HEP lock, but that mm. just means we start the IV, but we don't connect any IV fluids to you. So we have access in case we need to give medication or give you fluids if you get dehydrated or decide to get an epidural later. But if you're wanting an unmedicated birth, or maybe you're in early labor and you don't quite need the epidural yet, and you're drinking water and you're feeling, you're not feeling nauseous, then, um, then maybe we'll just start a saline lock. And so we'll have the IV started, but we won't connect you to any IV fluids. And that just allows you to move about the room and not feel tied down to the IV and the IV pole. People really don't like to schlep that IV pole around the room into the bathroom and back <laughs> if you don't need it. I think sometimes we do it out of habit. We just start IV fluid. Mm. But um, I encourage you to ask for that saline lock if you don't um, require IV fluids right off the bat. I think it's a great idea. More freedom, right? More freedom of movement. Less entanglements. Doesn't feel very medical. I think that's just kind of part of the vibe for some people. They, they don't even want a saline lock. But access is really important. And that's part of hospital birth. And we like it as a just-in-case. I don't want that to cause people to think that we're trying to project some worrisome thing onto you, but it sure makes things easier if something were to go sideways. I don't want to have to be screwing around with my time. I really want to just have access. Um, some people just flat out say no. Mm. And I say, okay. I never really go to the wall on trying to convince anybody who's made it clear that they don't want IV access at all. Mm -hmm. I might 
try a few different angles. And if I get shut down, then I'm okay, cool. No problem. And then, you know, we'll deal with it when it, you know, or if it even comes up. Right. I would say in general too, that labor and delivery nurses are pretty good at starting IVs because we have to do it a lot. (laughs) Um, But Liz, what, what happens if we're having trouble? Like what if the patient's veins are really small or uh, how would you deal with that? Well, there's a couple of things, you know, I really try really hard to assess my patient to look and see if this is going to be tricky. I think it's interesting. Sometimes people say, oh, by the way, I have terrible veins or I don't have any veins. That's my favorite. (laughs) I'm like, guess what? Yes, you do. (laughs) They're not visible at the moment, but we're going to, we're going to figure this out. Somehow everybody gets an IV and we like to put them somewhere between your wrist and your elbow um, in labor and delivery, because we don't want you not to be able to bend your arm easily. So we don't put them in the crook of the elbow, which we call the antecubital space, unless it's uh, an emergency or you really want an epidural and I have to give you fluid. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Then I might say, I'm going to put this in this suboptimal space. And then when you're hydrated, um, I'm going to move it. But if you want that to happen sooner than later, just let me put it where I want. If I am having a day where it's an off day, I might ask somebody else to put it in. Mm-hmm. doesn't happen very often, but I think it's important to be able to be humble and go to a colleague and say, I don't see anything. You want to come have a look? And then if I'm really, really struggling to find access, I will get out my favorite little toy, the vein finder. It shines a big red light that makes your veins pop up. It's beautiful. I love it. I think it's helpful. We have one on the floor. Most units do. And then if I'm really in dire straits, I get the anesthesiologist and say, all right, you got you to gotta do this. But and I think that's it, pretty rare that we have pretty, to do that. But pretty rare. Uh, but I've been there sometimes where even the anesthesiologist it takes a couple tries. Yeah, for them to find the vein too. So it's not not necessarily that uh, that we're bad at our job, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but sometimes your veins are just really tricky. So. I feel like it's that old game, Trivial Pursuit. Do you remember that game? It was like all the rage. 15 years ago. I'm not really into those kinds of games, but yes, I know. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, if you're brilliant one day and the next day you don't know, you know, you can't name six states. (laughs) So one day I'm, I'm starting everyone's IV and I'm patting myself on the back and I'm just feeling so good about myself. And then you get humbled and stare at your patient's arm for 25 minutes, just shaking your head going, uh, got nothing here. <laughs> Been there. IV starts, blood draws, questions, questions, questions. We talked about that. Medications. You know, it's interesting. People often don't realize that medications also include prenatal vitamins, DHA, iron, antidepressants, asthma medication, thyroid. So sometimes people will say, I'm not taking any medications. And then I'll start rattling off stuff. Well, it says in your chart that you have hyperthyroid. Oh, yeah, yeah, I take 
medication for my thyroid. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I take inhalers, uh, right? Exactly. <laughs> so in other words, <laughs> you are on medications. So we want to know everything, everything, everything that you take, that you ingest. I also like to know about herbs and homeopathic stuff too. I just want to kind of know where we are in what people are ingesting, right? Yeah. What else? We talk about um, what's your due date? Is that really your due date? Do you think mm-hmm. it's your due Did date? It change your multiple times. <laughs> right. Absolutely. How, if, especially think- if it's preterm labor, right? A preterm labor patient comes in and they're kind of in that gray area, 34 to 36 weeks. Like, mm, are we going to stop this labor? Should we try to stop the labor? Is it preterm labor? What, what's your due date exactly? Do you know? So those are tricky times too, if it's a preterm patient, yeah. but we want to get dates right off the bat out of you. So we know that we can move forward and not try to give medications to stop this labor in its tracks right away. Mm-hmm. Right. I think another yeah. common question from patients is when is my doctor coming or oh, yeah. what did my doctor say about my care? Right. And yeah. Sometimes we haven't even had a chance to call the doctor yet because we've been in the room the whole time. So usually we like to get all our information on the patient. We like to know your dates. We like to know what number pregnancy, if you've had miscarriages before abortions, and your specific birth plan if you have one, so that when we do call the doctor, we can sound first of all informed and educated that we know the patient and ask specific questions of the doctor if the patient has requested specific things maybe the patient really wants to walk around or take a shower can i be on the monitor but what would ascertain that well if the baby meets the criteria when we do our initial fetal heart rate tracing, and we're looking at the fetal heart rate, we've determined that this is a well-oxygenated baby and things look good, we can report that to the doctor and the doctor will usually say, she can be off the monitor for a certain period of time throughout her labor. And But that takes us to get that information first. I think some people get really irritated that I put them on the monitor right off the bat. The very, very first thing we need to do, remember back to the beginning of this, is is we need to get a good baseline and know that we do not have any fetal distress so that, that we can report that. We need to get an exam, effacement, dilation, station, position, the four things that we are going to find out when we do a manual exam of your cervix. That's the one thing that tells me where we're starting from. It's a baseline. I wouldn't even call the doctor without that information. Mm -hmm. There are circumstances where we don't want to do an exam, right? Yeah. If they're before a certain gestation, we don't want to irritate the cervix and cause more contractions because uh, inevitably that's kind of what a cervical exam does. Yeah. So... I yeah, have to say before before thirty yeah. before thirty five weeks, me personally, I would ask the doctor bef- 
before I do an exam. And then if the doctor says, yes, please do an exam, then I would do it. Yeah. So there's all kinds of circumstances where an exam is not appropriate. Mm-hmm. If your water's leaking and you're not yet in labor, and we've already proven that it's amniotic fluid, we have a little Q-tip test that gives us a pretty good indication if uh, amniotic fluid versus other secretions or pee, <laughs> but you're not in labor, why don't we want to do an exam? Patients always say, can you examine me and let me know where you are, or, you know, where I am? And I say, mm-hmm. not a good idea because I'm introducing that first bacteria yep. and your membranes have ruptured. And now we're starting that clock of potential for infection. So there are appropriate times to examine the cervix and there are certainly appropriate times to hands off. Let's wait and see. And certainly if the obstetrician wants the OB that's on the unit, or if that obstetrician wants to come in and ultrasound or examine his or her patient with a speculum so they don't have to put their hands on that cervix, then that's their prerogative and that's completely an obstetrical medical decision, right? Mm -hmm. So all the come into play, all of that is part of the beginning. This is just in the first hour or so Mm -hmm. of labor. Most times after that, we're just kind of letting you be in your room and we're checking on you. We can see the monitors from the nurse's station. Like we have our own set of monitors in the nurse's station where we're watching what's going on with your baby and with your contractions the whole time. Yeah. So we don't need to be in the room the whole time. And I don't, I don't know if you would want us in the room the whole time. Um, yeah. So a lot of times we, we get through that first hour, maybe two hours of our assessment and starting the IV and all that stuff. And then we just kind of, let you be. So we'll check on you usually once once or twice an hour. We're in the room pretty often, I would say, either adjusting the monitors or some kind of alarm goes off. So we have to go in and, and adjust those alarms. And, uh, and then we're waiting for you to get to 10 centimeters. So I wanted to talk about assessment period. Because that's when, you know, we're getting to know our patient, you're getting to know us, um, kind of getting a vibe about what you guys are about. And I know that there's um, a lot of questions. Some people come in and say, we don't know anything. We're not book readers. We just sort of have an idea of what this is going to be like. We're kind of a fly by the seat of our pants kind of people. We're not overly concerned and let the process roll. That's good with me. And then other people are very educated and very interested in the minutiae. They want details and timelines and finite information. Um, This is when I start getting into the I don't knows of their questions. And I know people look disappointed when they ask me a question like, how long do you think I'll be in labor? Or is my pain going to get worse? You know, labor and delivery is one of the most unpredictable subspecialties in medicine. But during that assessment time, that first hour, that's the getting to know you phase. So let's talk a little bit about a birth plan. 
this is the time that I'd like to go through it if you're in the frame of mind to be able to have a conversation. If you come in out of your mind and labor in eight centimeters, we're just getting the room ready for a delivery. If you're coming into labor and delivery and you're in discomfort and you're clearly in labor and we've established that you're in labor, we have time to talk about your birth plan and what I can do for you, what is realistic and what isn't. And I think that is the best time to start right off the bat trying to figure out how we can accommodate your wishes. We want you to have the birth vision that you want to have, but sometimes it's just not possible. Yeah, I totally agree. I think when there is that time to get to know our patients really well, it's fun. We're we're establishing rapport. They're they're seeing that they can trust us and we're getting to know more about their pregnancy and how this is going and and ease their fears and answer those those detailed questions that we may not be able to have time to answer if they were further progressed in their labor. So it is it is nice in a sense when they come in early enough where we can answer all those questions calmly and they can ease into the whole labor and delivery world. Yeah, it's really hard when someone comes in in dire straits. And when I say dire straits, I mean in serious labor, active labor, very uncomfortable, and they want something to happen right at that moment. So I always say to my clients in birth class, when you're at home doing your labor thing, think about coming to the hospital when you can no longer comfortably speak through your contractions. You don't have to wait till you're out of your mind because that's going to make it a little bit more challenging to be able to have that back and forth between the nursing staff than if you were not sort of at that point. Now, here's the flip side to this. Other patients come in when they're just about to deliver and that was their plan and that's fine too. If Mm -hmm. someone stayed home doing it with their doula or their virtual doula, love virtual doulas, by the way, I'm really digging it. And they intended to come to have very little intervention and they got there and they, we call it a stop and drop and had their baby within 15 minutes fine with me. Love it. But if your intention is to ease yourself into it, or if you already know that you want an epidural and you come in when you're in dire straits, we do need to get that information and establish, um, you know, fetal well-being and get you hydrated. So just remember going through your birth plan is part of that assessment. So I can tell you what I can do. So, and I also wanted to bring up the fact that some patients are GBS positive. So talk about that a little bit. So if you're GBS positive, that means you had the bacteria group beta strep, streptococcus. And that's a bacteria that is assessed for around what, 36, 37 38 weeks? About, yeah, 35, 36 weeks. Yeah, yeah. almost. And, get a swab. Yeah, it's a swab of your vagina and your rectum. And if you're positive for that bacteria, you need antibiotics when you're in labor. So it's not 
the end of the world if you get to the hospital and you only had time for one dose of antibiotics, but it's preferred if you get to the hospital in time to have at least two doses before delivery. So it'd be nice to know. I'm GBS positive. Mm -hmm. By the way, it's not the same strep that you get strep throat. It's group B. It's different. It lives quite comfortably in the uh, rectal vaginal canals of about 20% of um, these moms. Mm -hmm. And uh, you wouldn't even know about it if you weren't pregnant because it really doesn't have any real bearing on your life unless a baby's coming through the vaginal canal because babies have not yet activated their little gut, which means what? They don't have an active immune system. So they're susceptible. We know that if babies are coming really fast, you get there, you deliver 15 minutes later, people get very, I'm supposed to get antibiotics. I'm like, look, you just had a really amazing short labor and a fast birth. Let's just concentrate on the happiness of this for a moment, shall we? And then don't worry about it. We will assess the baby take temperatures. Your doctor might want one or two blood tests, small little samples to make sure the baby's not infected. But generally, we probably are in the safe zone. Lots of babies to group B strep mothers get born. And when they do that quickly, the exposure is generally minimal. So that's kind of the rundown of the first hour or so of you coming into labor and delivery. We just wanted to give that that quick picture <laughs> of what it looks like. Yeah, so that you're feeling prepared and and you're not caught off guard by all the things happening and swirling around you and all the people in your room. So I hope that was helpful. You're not prepared, we are. Exactly. And we're always gonna talk you through things and right. And uh, yeah, we hope you enjoyed listening. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Birth Nurses Podcast. If you enjoyed this, there are a few ways you can support us. First, you can share this podcast with your pregnant friends or new moms. Secondly, you can write a review and rate us on iTunes. And thirdly, we would love if you would check out our Instagram accounts and websites. I'm on Instagram as Preparented and online www.preparented.com. And Liz is on Instagram as Birth Nurse Liz, and her website is birthandbeyond.net. Thanks for listening.